But you'll uh, have to forgive me this morning. This is about the voice that you're going to get today. Uh, last night we uh, went to watch the sporting game. If you don't keep up with soccer, they had to win to get into the postseason while at the same time have somebody else lose and all that happened. And uh, so it was a sold-out crowd, great atmosphere, and I purposely did not yell and scream the whole game because I knew this would happen. But it was so loud, just having a conversation with the person next to you involved yelling and screaming, and this is what you get now. But uh, it was a fun night, um, got the chance afterwards, uh, we, we were really blessed to let, let, uh, let the kids come down and get to meet some of the players, and then of all people, George Brett was down there. And um, we kind of, like, I, I went up to him, like, this is my first favorite athlete as a kid. I thought, I just want to go up and shake his hand and, and maybe get a quick picture with him. And uh, did. Well, guess who else is down there, if you happen to know Myron? Of course, Myron would be down there as well, too. And guess who knows George Brett, because he knows everybody, would be Myron. So now guess who else is best friends with George Brett? Because if you know Myron, you know everybody. And so... <laughs> Once he made that connection that I was Myron's pastor, then we couldn't get away from him. Like, it was, it, was, it was pretty cool, but we got some pictures with our kids, and they got to meet him. They had no idea who he was, but they got to meet him anyway, and, and uh, so it, it was fun. But this is the voice you get today. Also, you might notice that uh, some of us on staff are all kind of dressed alike because somebody thought we all needed matching shirts. What we want you to do is on your connection card, write down who wore it best, Okay. <laughs> We have a little friendly wager going on within the staff, so uh, just drop that in the offering box on your way out because we're really curious uh, which one of us you think will for it best. Hey, we're in week two of the series called Questions Jesus Asked, and I have a confession to make. Last week, I asked you, uh, talking about the question, why do you worry? I said, how many of you have ever worried? Some of you didn't raise your hands, and I said, next week, we're going to ask the question, why do you lie in church? That was a lie. I need to confess that. We're not asking that question today. Uh, today we're going to ask a very different question that's found in John chapter 8. And it's the question, has no one condemned you? Uh, this is a, an interesting little passage here. And before we dive into it, I just want to lay some context out. This is the beginning of John chapter 8. There's a 12-verse section, actually starting in chapter 7, verse 53, going through chapter 8, verse 11. And if you look in your Bible, if you've got a, a more modern translation looking in an actual printed Bible, you might see brackets around this, or you might see a little heading above this. And even on your, uh, your electronic versions, you might see it in italics or something like that. What it's telling you is, as we've gotten older trans, uh, manuscripts, as, as archaeologists have discovered older manuscripts of, of the scriptures, this section was not in those earlier manuscripts. And so, therefore, some debate has arisen. Is this canon? Is this inspired scripture? Did this really happen? On and on and on, where this has actually become a bit of a controversial piece of scripture. Here's kind of my thought on this as I have, have studied this and really looked at this and looked at what a lot of different people have to say. Did John write this with the original, original text? Probably not. But did this actually happen? Probably. And here's why I say that. After a few decades... This story was most likely just told orally, like all the rest of the stories about Jesus. To where at some point, a scribe who was making another copy of the Gospel of John just wrote it down as if it was part of it, because that's what that scribe had always heard. Either way, whether this was inspired scripture or added later, there is a lot of value in this. And I do believe this was an event that very likely happened, because it fits what Jesus did all the time. Because in this story, we see Jesus interact 
with Pharisees and also a person caught in sin, like he did so often. And in this story, again, whether this, you want to fall in the line of this is inspired scripture or added later, we see something that is very important when it comes to the character of God. We see, I think, the two contrasting factors that really help define God's character, that that's just a judgment and mercy. Often we think of these two as being extremes, that you can have judgment and justice or you can have grace and mercy. And I think that a lot of times we tend to lean as Christians too much one or the other. Like you've got judgment over here. Everything is black and white. Everything is right or wrong. And you border on legalism. Or you come over here and it's all grace and it's all mercy. And therefore there really aren't rules and it becomes more liberalism. And so you've got this mindset and this idea that because God's grace is there that we can do whatever we want. And the truth is these are two sides of the same coin. These are two sides of the same entity, and God shows us how to balance both of these. What I want to do this morning is just walk through this text, and I'm going to pause a couple of times as we do that and kind of look at at what this text is telling us and then come back afterwards and and see what it means to us and why it matters still today. So if you've got a Bible, we're in John chapter 8. We've got it on the screens otherwise. And in verse 1, I don't have this up there, but verse 1, it says, Jesus had spent the night on the Mount of Olives. In, in Jerusalem. Starting in verse 2, then it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. In Jerusalem, you've got the Mount of Olives, this, this really short and, and very narrow Kidron Valley, which is just to the west of it, and then the temple. And, and these are very, very close, within a half a mile of, of, of each other. You can very easily walk that back and forth. So for Jesus to go from the Mount of Olives over to the, the temple courts was really just a short walk and something that that many people like him did very often. And we see, like so many other times in Scripture, Jesus is taking the posture of a rabbi. He's pulling up a stool or finding a place to sit, and the crowd is gathering around him. Some scholars think that this isn't chronologically in the right place in John, that this actually might have taken place closer to the Passion Week, because a lot of what's going on in this spot in John is in a different part of Israel. But now he's right there. The crowds are big. They're following him. There's a large gathering around him as he is teaching in this moment. Verse 3, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. A lot of of wording here to pay attention to. And therefore, a lot to unpack here. Uh, First off, when I read this and and get this visual and this image of Jesus teaching to this large crowd and these religious leaders bringing this woman up, there is, again, it says they put her right in the middle of the crowd. They didn't pull Jesus off to the side. They didn't do this in private. They come right to the middle of this large crowd of people and bring this woman. I don't know if when they say caught in the act of adultery, did they give her time to put some clothes on? Did they just drag her right out of bed and bring her here? I don't know, but here's where we are. But notice what what we see here, and notice what we don't see here. There's the woman. Where's the man? What did they they do with him? You know, I don't know a lot of things, but I know it takes two to tango. And here is her, but not him. And the reason I ask that question is by the very Levitical law that they had, he should be subject to the same punishment as her. Leviticus 20 says, if a man commits adultery with another's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, you could argue, well, maybe 
they weren't both married. Maybe one of them was married, the other one wasn't. Well, even still, he is subject to some form of punishment in the temple courts by other verses in Leviticus. So again, where is he? They just bring her and her alone. And I think sometimes we get that same little bit of hypocritical mindset. We see somebody who has committed some kind of sin, somebody who has done something wrong, and we want God's justice to be brought down upon them. But this person over here who might actually be doing the exact same thing, we really don't care. It's all about this person. It's almost like we've got an ax to grind. It's almost like we've got a mindset towards one person that we really want that person to get the, the, the subject and object of God's attention here. But it's interesting that the Pharisees tell him this woman was caught in the act. How did they catch her in the act? They were spying outside of her windows. You know, did somebody else catch them and tell them? Did they hear rumors and then just make an, an accusation here? I don't really know here. But what's interesting about this is to say that they were caught in the act, and this is their first response here, is to bring this woman to Jesus. And we're going to see why here in just a moment. According to Jewish custom and culture, if you caught somebody sinning, or if you caught somebody about to sin, your first responsibility was to try and stop them from sinning or to try to get them out of that. That's a lesson we could learn. How often are we that way with each other? We hold each other accountable. We keep each other from sinning or we try to pull each other out of sinning rather than just immediately grabbing that person by the back of the collar and dragging them and throwing them in front of the wolves to be judged. No, they brought this woman to Jesus in front of a crowd, not in private, not off to the side. They wanted the interaction. They wanted what's about to come next. Look at verse 5. They tell him, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? It says in verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Just, just notice the story here. Because I want to get one thing very clear. These leaders, these Pharisees, they don't care about this woman whatsoever. She means nothing to them. They don't even care about what she did. That means nothing to them. They need something to go after Jesus. And what they think here is they've got the perfect crime. Because Jesus has to say something. And either way, he's going to be wrong. That's their mindset. If Jesus says, yeah, you know what, you're right. Stone her. She sinned, she deserves it, the law says we have to do this. Well, then what, they, what do they do? They look at Jesus and say, this message of compassion that you've been teaching for years means nothing. You've just thrown that out the window. And not only that, Jesus also kind of oversteps a little bit, if that's the case, because in order now in this particular point in their society, for somebody to commit a, an execution, that had to go through the Roman government. That had to be signed off on. Again, go to the crucifixion account of Jesus, you kind of see those levels of, of red tape they had to go through. That's why they struggled so much, the Jewish leaders, to get somebody to sign off so they could crucify Jesus. So if he okays this, then they can trap him on that too. Well, now you're breaking the law. On the other hand, if he excuses it and says, you know, it's not a big deal. My, my heart's with her. You know, she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then the law means nothing. And he's thrown that out. And all this righteousness that he talks about no longer matters. They've got him right where they want him. Except here's a problem. They're forgetting their own history here. They're forgetting a few centuries earlier what happened with King David. You remember the story, King David sins with a woman named Bathsheba, who is a married woman. 
He, he commits adultery with her and then tries to cover that up and, and just snowballs it into a, a litany of sins after that. And yet we read through the Psalms and we read through the rest of, of the accounts of David in, in 2 Samuel and we know that David found the grace of God. In fact, in Psalm 51, he writes this in, in response to what happened with Bathsheba. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. That sounds like somebody who understands a little bit both the justice and the mercy of God. And look what he writes in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. David understands that God is just, but he's also justifying. That he's both. He's both sides of that coin. And that only God can judge him. And that God has judged him. And God has given him mercy anyway. David knows this. And now you've got God in the flesh here in front of these Pharisees with this woman. God in the flesh and the person of Jesus. And that's what they're bringing to him. Saying, hey, here she is. Pick your poison. And look at Jesus' response. This is fascinating. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. This is like something my five-year-old would do, right? Like you ask him to do something and he just goes over here and does something else. And, you know, for centuries now, for 2,000 years, one of the biggest questions in the entire Bible is, what did Jesus write on the ground? And there's speculation and it's honest, it's good speculation. Some scholars think that he was down there writing the names of these Pharisees or that he was writing their sins in the sand or that he was actually writing something from the prophet Isaiah or maybe that he was down there writing what he planned to have for dinner over the next few days. I don't know. Here's my honest and theological response to what Jesus was writing. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't explain it. He doesn't say a word about it. And, and so it's, it's me, it's not worth trying to figure out. But I think when I look at what Jesus did here, I think what he's doing is a couple of things. Because I think whether he actually was writing, drawing, whatever, I think he was making a line in the sand that's both metaphorical and literal. Because he's going to draw a line here in a minute for both the Pharisees and for this woman. But I think, too, maybe even more than that, he's making them wait just a little bit longer before he gives a response. Parents, you ever do this? I do this with my kids all the time, just because it's fun. <laughs> they will admit they've done something wrong to me, and I don't respond immediately. And I used to do this with my soccer players when I coached, and one of them one day was, I just wish you'd yell and scream and cuss at us because then we'd know what you're thinking. Say, that look you have on your face is more terrifying than anything you're going to say. Because we don't know what you're thinking. I think Jesus is letting them stew just a little bit. Just an extra beat or two. Because they're wound up. And all they're going to do is get themselves more and more wound up. It says in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him. They don't stop. They keep going. Look what he says. He straightened up to them and said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and started writing on the ground again. He played in the dirt some more. What a response. 
as only Jesus can do here. He takes 18 words that are in the NIV in the English translation of this. 18 words and completely strips and disarms their entire argument. They tried to spring a trap on him and he's flipped it right back on them. But I wanna, I wanna look at what he said here because I think this is a very misinterpreted and misconstrued uh, tra- uh, part of the Bible here that, that we've read for centuries now. As we read this, if anybody's without sin, let them throw the first stone. We think what he means there is that if we have sinned, we're not allowed to have any judgment towards anybody ever whatsoever. That's not what he's talking about here. Because if that's the case, we need to get rid of the legal system, get rid of the justice system, because none of us have any place to ever hold anybody else accountable because we've also messed up. We've also sinned. And and we see that Jesus isn't opposed to justice. He's not opposed to that. We see that throughout the rest of the Gospels. I think what he's saying here is not you can't have a completely, or you, you must have a completely sinless heart. I think what he's saying is you must have an honest heart. You must have an innocence towards, towards what you're trying to do here. Don't come for justice with an ax to grind. Don't come to, for justice with an agenda. I think that's what he's getting at here. In Deuteronomy 19, it refers to that honest heart that, that you could use to bring somebody towards justice. And I think, too, where it leads, because the Jewish law kind of led into this a little bit, is that you weren't allowed to bring accusation against somebody if you had done the same thing, if you were guilty of the same sin. And, and maybe, just maybe, these Pharisees are guilty of that same sin. Because in this world and in this culture, sexual sin was, was just as perverse as it is in ours today. We think this is a 21st century problem. It's been going on since the first few pages of the Bible. If you've ever heard of Sodom or Gomorrah, it's been going on for a while. And one thing we know about the Roman Empire is it might have been the most vile and corrupt and, and deviant society that's ever existed. And even though these are Jewish leaders, we're now about 100 years into Roman rule, things start to trickle down. Okay, What, what you allow starts to trickle down just a little bit here. And maybe these Pharisees, while maybe they haven't actually touched another woman, or maybe they've not committed physical adultery with, with another woman, maybe they remember what Jesus said just a couple of years earlier on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, when he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Guys, I don't need to see a show of hands. I don't want to see a show of hands. I want you just to answer this question inside yourself. How many of you have never physically been unfaithful, but you've given a second look to someone? You've shot somebody an extra glance. You've let the thoughts roll around your head just a little bit. Maybe these Pharisees have done the same thing here. Maybe these Pharisees, knowing the Jewish culture, were disobeying what they were told, that you weren't allowed to to bring an accusation against somebody when you were guilty of the same crime. Again, they think they've set the perfect trap for Jesus, and he has sprung it right back on them. And he's saying, if you haven't had this sin, then sure, go ahead and throw a stone. But look what happens in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up. He stands up for the first time. 
And he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replies, no one, sir. And he replies back to her, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus has every right to condemn this woman because it says in in, in the Bible that he was without sin. He was tempted like we were, but he is without sin. Therefore, he can hold her accountable freely. He's within his rights to do that, but he has no interest in condemning her. He's only interested in transforming her. So he frees her. Think about this for just a moment. The one person who has ever walked this planet who has every right to condemn you didn't because he knew just a few few months later he was going to take her place and let the condemnation come on him. He was going to take that. He was going to wear that. He was going to bear that for this woman but for all of mankind. He was going to take the sin on him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's letting this woman go. No matter what you have done, he has let you go because his grace and his mercy are bigger than what you have done. And there's forgiveness that comes from him. But you need to understand something that goes alongside this, the other side of that coin, that forgiveness, while freely given, is hardly cheap. It is hardly easy and simple because with that grace that takes away your sin also comes an expectation and a responsibility to live a holy and a righteous life that follows him and not your own selfish desires. Go back to what he just told her there in in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Then what's he say? Now go and leave your life of sin. It's not an either or. It's a both and. I forgive you, I don't condemn you, but go live your life without sin. I look at this story, and and I read this, and I see that, yes, he's forgiving her, and then in the next breath, giving her a mission, giving her a commission, giving her something to do. The grace of God takes your sin away, but understand the life of Jesus doesn't excuse an okay sin. He is saying that living for me is living apart from that, living apart from that life of sin. Everything about his ministry, everything about his teaching stood against sin. Everything about it was kingdom-focused and kingdom-minded so that we would walk with him and draw closer to him and become more like him. As we read this story, it is so layered and also so simple all at once. That's the Gospel of John for you. It's so complex and so simple all at the same time. And what I want to do is look at this. Because when we read this, we we get this main idea here that God's grace is amazing, but at the same time, his grace doesn't excuse or minimize sin. And I want to just look at what that means for us today. Just a couple of really quick lessons I take out of this that I want to share with you guys because I think this helps us, whether you are, are somebody who has been faithful following Jesus for years, maybe you're here checking Jesus out for the very first time, and you don't even know what it is I'm talking about. Maybe you follow Jesus, but you're finding yourself kind of getting chased or pulled back into a life of sin. Either way, I want us to look at what this story means for us here today. Here's the first lesson. Number one, we have all been caught in the act. Don't try to pretend like you've gotten away with something. Maybe I didn't see it. Maybe somebody else didn't see it. We've all been caught in the act. 
Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I think about this because I... I've told you this. I grew up in a small town, and my dad was a police officer. I could get away with nothing. And he's told me several times, I may not catch you, but somebody I know will. And I, I was thinking back to the other day, the very first time I ever got pulled over. Uh, I was, I think I was 16 or 17, and a couple of the teachers in our, our school had opened up kind of this, this teen's coffee shop hangout place just for, for us to go. It was a really cool spot downtown in my hometown. We had just installed two a bunch of new street lights on our main street, so it was nice and bright down there. And, and I was down there one night. It's, it's a weeknight. It's about ten o'clock. I'm getting ready to head home, and you know it's pretty quiet at this point in a, in a small town. And I'm driving down like two or three blocks down Main Street. I'm sitting at a stop sign, and I see a police car pull up behind me, and I recognize the guy. Now I know who he is. And then his lights come on. I'm like, okay, he's just messing with me, because that's what they did. If you were the son of a cop, you you had no chance. Like, you were going to get teased and joked and, and poked all the time. The lights come on. I'm like, well, then he gets out of his car, pops in there, and, Mr. Witten, you know why I pulled you over? I'm thinking, and I start saying this, like, well, I was sitting at a stop sign, so I know I didn't run it because I'm literally sitting here. And I wasn't speeding because, again, like I just said, I am sitting at a stop sign, and you didn't even pull up behind me until I was already sitting at the stop sign. And I'm saying this stuff out loud to him, like this guy I've known forever, and I, I'm running through all this, and he reaches down inside my window, I have this 1984 Chevy S10, pulls a switch, my headlights come on. <laughs> he goes, just so you're aware, it is a law in the state of Oklahoma that you have to have headlights on after dark. Or then I just feel like an idiot, you know. So I get home. It's like two or three minutes home. I'm running through my head. I have to tell my dad this. He probably already knows. <laughs> so several times I've, he told me, hey, you're, you need to slow down driving down this one road. He didn't see me. I didn't have to see you. He knew. So I walk in the door. Hey, Dad. Hey, Kurt. Did, uh, did Danny call you? Danny was the police officer. No, why would Danny call me? No reason whatsoever. I love you. Good night, you know. <laughs> we hadn't called him. But it's just that idea. I knew my dad was going to know. I knew that he was going to know because, again, if, if I did anything, not to say that they were just constantly watching me like a hawk, but if I did anything that they felt was, wasn't cool, they probably weren't going to stop me and write me a ticket, but they were going to tell my dad, which in some ways was worse, Right? No, God knows what you have done. He sees your heart. He sees your actions, and you can't hide it from him. So yes, you have already been caught in the act, whether you realize it or not. Number two we get from this lesson is that judgment will come on those who are unforgiving and unrepentant. Those are two big words, and I want you to pay attention to those, unforgiving and unrepentant. That's where the judgment will come. Unforgiving meaning we're not willing to look past our own sin. All we can do is see the sin of others. And we can't, we can't forgive them of their sin because we're so caught up in our own. We want them to be judged. We want them to be held accountable to God for everything that they have done. But unrepentant is the one we need to pay attention to as well. Because that's what he just told this woman, to go and leave your life of sin. 
Hebrews 10, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That doesn't mean that if you just run this life of sinning and one day decide you don't want to do this anymore, that you won't be forgiven. That's not what he means by there. He means don't pretend that just because you have the grace of God, you've got to get out of jail free card. And you can go do whatever you want, whenever you want. He's telling you to live a life that is refusing to sin. I told you this a few weeks ago. I had a, a pastor once who somebody asked him, I guess that you're a pastor, you're a Christian, you don't ever sin anymore. He said, I do, I just don't want to. I don't try to, but it happens. And sometimes I make mistakes. Repentance is when you fundamentally change your mind about something. When you kind of do an about face. When you are walking one direction, stop and walk the other direction because you realize that's not the way I want to walk anymore. And when it comes to our salvation, repentance means I am no longer going to live a self-serving life. I'm no longer going to live a life that's all about me and whatever I want. I want to live a life that's kingdom-focused, a life that's trying to become more like Jesus, even though I'm still a flawed person, even though I'm still going to make mistakes. I'm going to live a life that is focused toward him. Kind of on that same line, number three, Jesus always welcomes the sinner, and his grace is transforming. We have a hard time reading the Gospels and seeing somebody who experienced his grace and didn't walk away radically changed. And that's what I think he wants with this woman. He doesn't want to condemn her. He wants to transform her. In Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus uh, being, being met by a prostitute. And she anoints his feet with oil and washes his feet. And she blesses him. And that rankles the religious people because who's this person who's wrapped up in sin coming to, to bless you? Luke 19, he goes and, and, and meets somebody named Zacchaeus and goes to his house. And Zacchaeus was this dirty, rotten sin co tax collector, the, the biggest of the sinners, according to the Jewish people, the worst of the worst. And Jesus goes to his home. In Matthew chapter 9, he forgives the sins of a paralytic. And you were a paralytic because you were full of sin or somebody in your family was full of sin. And then in the very next section, he calls a tax collector, again, another worst of the worst, named Levi, also known Matthew. And then he goes to Matthew's home, and he has a dinner at Matthew's home, and he celebrates in Matthew's home this home full of sinners. And that's where the Pharisees just can't handle this anymore. And I love this passage in Matthew 9, verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, Jesus in Matthew's home, reclining at the table, dining with all these people, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I love this. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners. Can you imagine if you were sick or you were hurt and you went down to the hospital today and they said, sorry, we only take healthy people here. Or if we put a sign up on our door, let's get a little more real. We put a sign up on our door and said, sinners go somewhere else. We only want people who have been baptized and are already walking with Jesus because that's who we are. Can you imagine a church that would do that? And yet, maybe not a sign on the door, a lot of churches have done that. A lot of churches have done that over the course of time. A lot of Christians have done that over the course of time. And we forget that Jesus said something to the Pharisees when he was there at Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19. And they asked him what he was doing. Remember what he said? The Son of Man came to seek and save who? The lost. Seek them. 
Go find them, he says, and then save them. He was welcoming to the sinner, but he's transforming as well too. Paul lays that out maybe so, so well in Romans chapter 3. When we get this image of Jesus on the cross, and he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Pay attention to this before we go further. Because in the Greek, you can kind of see it in the English, but in the Greek there are two different verb tenses at play here. We have sin, past tense. We fall short, present active tense. Paul's saying, we have sinned, we are sinning, we will continue to sin. It's in our nature. We just can't avoid it. But he goes on in verse 24, it says, and all are justified freely by the grace through, uh, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Uh, these, these words justified and redeemed, we, we read these justified as being found guilty of a crime but not being subject to the punishment that comes with it. And redeemed as being set free, being bought out of slavery and set free and given your life back. And he's saying the blood of Jesus did both of those. It freed you from the penalty of your sin and it set you free from where that sin was holding you. Look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's big. That means you were set free from the wrath of God. And we don't like to think about the wrath of God, but folks, you can't have the grace of God without being subject to the wrath of God. Without wrath, grace means nothing. There's no, nothing to compare it to. But what he's saying here is instead of him pouring out his wrath on you, Jesus was who bore the wrath. He's the one that bore the brunt of that. And because of that, Paul writes here, that through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, that God presented himself as the just and as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Just think about this. The one person who has the authority to render judgment is the one who justified and let you go from the punishment. That's what he's saying here. That's transformation. That's welcoming the sinner but transforming them and getting them away from the sin. And here's why that's important, because the last thing I get out of this passage is that God's grace doesn't minimize or excuse sin, but it calls for you to live a holy life. It calls for you to walk away from that sin and to walk towards him. Again, it's easy to think that, that grace is just a get-out-of-jail-free card. And to some degree, to some degree it is, but that's not all it is. It's also a call to live a transformed life following Jesus. I love how Romans 12 says it. Paul writes, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Like at verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Just, just that verse, don't conform to what the world is trying to tell you to conform to, but rather allow the grace of God to, to transform the renewing of your mind into something totally different, a person that is radically following after God, a person that knows, yes, sin might have earthly consequences, but eternally I'm safe with God. And that's something we've got to remember. Sin does carry consequences. Crime carries consequences, and, and it should. 
We read in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And so your sin might cost you, and it might cost you dearly. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your spouse. It might cost you your family. It might cost you a chance to, to, to lead a ministry at the church. It might even make you subject to the justice system. Those are very real things. Those are very real consequences to what we do. But those are also earthly. Eternally, the grace of God takes that away from us. Because it says at the end of this verse, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he offers you this gift of grace, this gift of forgiveness. It's a free gift, but you still have to accept it. You have to accept it into your heart and then make that commitment to go in the other direction and walk away from what it is you were doing. That's where it starts, is right there in our heart. And you may come to me and say, Kurt, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've got in my past. You don't know who I've hurt and how I've hurt them. My response is always, no, I don't. But I know this, the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us if we ask for it and if we receive it. And it tells us, like we read a moment ago in Hebrews, that as long as we don't go on continually, intentionally chasing after that sinful life, that he will remain faithful and just for us. So I gotta just leave you with this challenge today. No matter what you have done, come to Jesus. I don't know where you're at in your walk today. But no matter where you're at, come to Jesus. Come to him. He's ready for you. He's, he wants you. He's excited for you to come to him.